2: Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Christian de Buchler about Tradewinds, a voyage into a sustainable future for shipping, um, which is published by Manchester University Press. Uh, So welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you very much, Dave.
2: This, I mean, this is a great book. uh, I should start by saying that. But it's also an incredibly unusual academic book. Uh, because it's both a kind of personal memoir as well as an incredibly detailed um, analysis and engagement that ranges across, I guess, two or three at least uh, different academic um, fields. And I'm really interested to know, um, and maybe we could start with your background, I guess, is in kind of uh, cultural studies, creative industries, uh, music scholarship, and yet you've written this book that's about climate change, and um, international shipping. So how did you end up writing such a, I guess, kind of different book? Um, how did you end up getting interested in global supply change and sustainability?
0: Um, yeah, it's, it's got a bit of a long story. And this, this, I, th- I think there's two ways of telling the story. Um, one is um, what I tend to tell people that I currently meet in the course of my research into shipping because very often when for example i'm at the international maritime organization people will ask me like what is your background and i kind of half jokingly respond that i'm a musicologist by training which is true um at which point they really look at me like i'm some sort of you know An idiot who's lost in that environment and they they really wonder why on earth a musicologist would hang around at um, the international maritime organization which is a space that is dominated mostly by naval engineers and architects and kind of lawyers and economists Um, so but then i tell them that i'm actually really trained as as say an anthropologist of policy so what i do is is i look at how policy structures kind of emerge how the narratives and ideologies and discourses of and surrounding policies come into place and how they're quite often contested while they're being implemented um, by looking at that kind of you know cultural environment surrounding those texts and institutions by trying to uncover the kind of power relations that surround them. And then, you know, explaining that I really mainly worked on cultural policies through that kind of approach, but that at some point I wanted to um, work on, you know, more climate- directly climate-relevant issues because it's such a massive um, challenge that we face. And at that point, I really started thinking, okay, obviously climate research is, is an incredibly crowded space, and that's that's great. It means that so many people are, you know, trying to make a contribution to that. But it also means that you kind of, if you are moving into that sideways, you have to be a bit careful that you can actually find a space where you can contribute something meaningful. And at a time when I really started thinking about moving into this space about five years ago, shipping was not really a climate topic yet. It wasn't until 2018 that there was a real kind of emissions reductions target for the shipping industry. So in 2017, research policy engagement and everything else was quite limited but and this brings me to the other kind of entry point into this is that i knew that since about 10 12 years now there had been um, different small sailing ships that had operated as cargo transport vessels across the atlantic ocean and in other spaces and i thought well I like sailing and I thought well maybe I can kind of move into that space by looking at those very small scale prefigurative initiatives that really try to make a difference by just doing it before there's any real um regulation in place so that's kind of how I moved into that space both moving sideways through my kind of anthropology of policy work, but also through, um, you know, my direct engagement with sailing.
2: I mean, it, in some ways, it's a an ethnography of an alternative, a sustainable alternative for the shipping industry, apart from the fact that you did it in 2020. <laughs> and that, you know, sort of radically reconfigures um, both the kind of... Um, anthropological and ethnographic experience but it also means that you you had um in some ways a kind of unique experience really you know not not just yourself and the other sailors but you know people involved in, in shipping at a particular time in 2020 must have been you know perhaps a few thousand people who who had a genuinely kind of different experience almost to the rest of the world so can you introduce uh, i guess the kind of the plan for the voyage, the timing of the voyage, and then uh, the fact that the voyage took place
0: in 2020? No, absolutely. Um, So after I spent um, a while speaking to um, the founders and owners of of these small-scale shipping companies, I thought, well, I mean, I'm a qualitative social scientist and, you know, What I'm kind of trained at is is really that kind of ethnographic work. So I thought rather than only having an interview-based kind of approach to this, I actually want to go to see and get a first hand feel for what this movement does, what this is like in practice rather than what the founders and owners of these companies want it to be and how they present it to be. And I'm not calling them liars in any way, but the, the fact is that you have these incredibly entrepreneurial people who basically, against the odds and against common sense, if you will, kind of say, we are just going to take small sailing ships and we're going to operate them. So whether you like it or not, we're doing it. And um, you can sail along if you want, but you know, we know we can't compete with these gigantic container ships, but we're just going to do it. That kind of people really need to have a very strong ability to convince people of their vision. And that, of course, as, as a researcher, is something that kind of makes you a little bit suspicious. Again, not because you think they're lying, but because you think that there's probably a little bit more to Kind of the movement that they're a part of, then the story that they would like everyone to believe. Because obviously, you know, the world is a very complex place, and the same applies to these kinds of initiatives. The social media presence is one, but being at sea is quite something else. So my plan was to join one of these ships, the Aventure, um, in Santa Cruz de Tenerife uh, on the Canary Islands, and. The idea was to join the ship for you know an Atlantic crossing that would take us about three weeks and um on the other end of the the Atlantic, I would disembark and travel onwards to Costa Rica to visit the Astillero verde um or the green shipyard where daniela southcott and um and her colleagues were building or are still building um a new wooden. Sailing cargo ship called Seba, and um, that was the plan. I would go there, visit the shipyard, see what they're up to as well, and you know have that inform my research. And in many ways, the the ocean crossing itself was some sort of um, a methodological um, a pilot study, if you will, because it's one thing to conduct ethnographic field work in a small community it's quite something else to do it in a closed community where you have to really negotiate a a, a very kind of um, tricky kind of entrance and presence but it's quite something else to do it in an environment where you don't know each other before you actually start the voyage so I didn't know any of my fellow crew members before I embarked um, on the ship. But also, from the moment that you set sail, no one can leave, which means that in terms of um, consent for participation, but also the boundary between, you know, what is personal, what is part of what I'm interested in as a researcher, and how do we navigate those different spaces was something that I was kind of struggling with how I would navigate that. So I wanted to figure that out, and that's why I thought, okay, a couple of weeks, I'll figure that out, and I'll see if this is a viable kind of, you know, ethnographic field site. But then, of course, we left um, Tenerife on the last day of um, t- February 2020, and at that point, we had no reason to believe that you know, that would be anything weird, nothing, you know, was there was some something on the horizon, but nothing quite prepared us for um, what was going to happen. And also, it wasn't until we were about halfway the ocean that we received a satellite message from the ship owner, Cornelius Bockerman, to our captain basically telling us that, you know, the world had changed quite a bit in our, in, in, since we since we set off and that we wouldn't be able to take cargo in Guadeloupe or Marigalland um, as planned. And that pretty much all borders were closed, ports were shut, and there was no clarity when we would be able to disembark or even get shore leave to just you know have you know our feet on terra firma and and kind of get some space for for to ourselves um when in port so that kind of really um changed what was meant to have been a very straightforward three-week ocean crossing into a bit of a longer voyage that ended up you know taking about five months
2: the the book weaves this story of what life was that was was like on sea, sort of intertwining it with a, a critique of both um, the shipping industry um, and I guess some kind of alternatives for uh, for kind of change, and it's a shame to kind of separate out actually the kind of um, narrative of, of life at sea with. Um, the analysis and, and the critique, but I think for, for the purposes of, of, of the chat, we might do that. And so maybe I'll, I'll sort of do two things um, and ask you two questions. The first is, so what was it like life at sea, both in terms of kind of life at sea generally, and there's some wonderful, you know, sort of uh, Melville Conrad style descriptions of, you know, getting washed and the bunk you were in and uh, the watches you, you were on and stuff like this. Um with the added, you know, element of what, as you say, should be, you prepared for, you know, kind of three weeks mentally, and then all of a sudden it's where well, you can't get off the boat. And actually, you know, it's not clear where, you know, you're allowed to sail. It's not clear when you're allowed to sail, you know, with various kind of weather conditions being placed on on top of uh, the the pandemic conditions in in ports, so yeah, c- could you give me a sense or uh, a kind of a feel for the book's discussion of of life
0: at sea? Um, yeah, f- of course um, so i'll I'll start with something really rather straightforward. Uh, anyone who's been to sea will 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 realize that this, but those who haven't probably won't, and it is that when you join a ship, you're basically at the mercy of the captain. And I'm not saying this um, to mean that the captain is necessarily some sort of, um, you know, evil dictator, but the captain is in charge, bears the responsibility, but also has the final say on everything, including the watch that you'll be a part of. and. How that works is that there are different ways of organizing watch systems, but we were in a four hours on eight hour off um, system where you had watches from midnight to 4 a.m., 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. and then 8 a.m. until midday. And then you had a repeat of that in the afternoon. And it meant that you basically got extremely close with the that the, your own watch the, the the four people usually that were on that same four or five people on that same watch you would get to know them incredibly well but because when you're on watch the others would likely be sleeping or resting meaning that you would actually have to make a bit of an effort to get to know them um so in order to kind of facilitate my presence as, as, as a kind of resident researcher was that captain proposed that I kind of in the first couple of weeks uh, or what what we thought would be the voyage is that I would shift between watches and I would kind of change a watch um, every, every week um, and that's what we did the first couple of weeks um, which allowed me to get to know everyone um but at the same time you're also um in an incredibly, you know, close environment because so most people stand um stand watches. In our case we had a captain, a first and a second officer, but we also had a bosun um and um, a cook on board. And the cook and the bosun were standing the so-called day watch, which meant that they had reasonably normal um kind of eight to five-ish kind of office hour-like schedules, but the rest of us were working around the clock. And also, I need to perhaps stress that um, most of the people on board were not professional seafarers or professional sailors even, but were so-called trainee sailors who signed on for the adventure. And um, several of those trainees had no sailing experience whatsoever. So there was a lot of learning to do while we were at it. So um, the first and second officer, as well as the the bosun and the captain were, you know, basically teaching us the ropes, quite literally, and um, making sure that we um, would be able to make ourselves useful. But added to that kind of idea of the captain being in charge is, of course, something where there's an element that which, there's an element to which that you're actually submitting to this voluntarily. If you're a professional seafarer, it's your job, and you just sign on for a certain period of time, and during that time, you're effectively not your own boss, not just professionally, but also in terms of your time. If there's an emergency. You're called on deck, and there's no discussion about it. You can't say, "Oh, but I was sleeping." There is no such thing. Um, but the main, the main thing that really makes this um, acceptable to most people is the fact that we do this voluntarily, or we do this voluntarily for a certain period, and it's the same for seafarer professional seafarers who sign a contract for six weeks or six months it doesn't really matter but they know up front how long they'll be at sea for but one of the things that happened because of the pandemic is that for us but also for every other seafare out there in the world and unlike what you kind of suggested there, there weren't a few thousand but there's basically between a million and a half and two million seafarers at sea on merchant ships at any time. And there's several tens of millions of seafarers who are on board fishing vessels, but they're not necessarily at sea in the same way. Some of them are at sea for very long times, but some only go out for the day. So that's, that's something that that, you know, but basically, in the merchant um, marine, there's around one and a half to 2 million people at sea at any given time. And all those people were in the exact same situation as us, that whenever they got into port, they were not allowed to step ashore, they weren't able to kind of get the crew change that was planned. And the voyage got extended, their contracts got extended, and our, you could say, adventure got extended as well. So that's kind of, a, I think, a rough introduction of of what life was like. And I think I can go on for hours about this, but um, I think we might want to get to some other parts of the book as well.
2: is a really sort of rich sense of both you say the adventure, but also the kind of corrosive effects of um, being on board for, for so long. And, you know, the kind of the day-to-day um, sort of relationships that, you know, ebb and flow. And and you mentioned, you know, the captain, the cook, they become really kind of important. Uh, characters throughout the book actually and, and you give a sense of their role and you've talked about the captain but also you know their kind of personalities come come through particularly the, the captain uh, at the end of the book um, it has some really sort of interesting parting comments but the other thing and and I said you know we do this in two parts is I guess the kind of the analysis of the shipping industry and its relationship to climate change and what we can do about it. So really obvious question uh, that comes quite early in the book is what's wrong with the shipping industry. And you talked about, um, you know, 2018 where questions about, you know, emissions and and, and kind of its relationship to climate change becomes more prominent, but you've got a much bigger critique, I think of the shipping industry throughout the book.
0: Yeah. I mean, so the thing is, with shipping, is that it's it's something on which the global economy really relies. We've noticed that when the Ever Given got stuck in the Suez Canal, all of a sudden, we all knew about shipping. We all knew about um, these choke points in the global supply chain, and we realized that, the Suez Canal, the Panama Canal, the Malacca Strait, and so on, replaces that, if something happens there, all of a sudden, the entire world, or, you know, our world of consumer products, but also life necessities, gets disrupted in a way that makes it very difficult to, you know, keep up the way in which we live our lives. And interestingly, of course, during the pandemic, shipping did not stop. While we were not allowed to step off, ships kept on transporting everything as they always do. Unlike, for example, you know, airplanes, which were either grounded or flying empty, ships were full, they were transporting goods and making sure that all the shelves and supermarkets and the shops remained stocked and that we were able to, to get everything we need. But one of the kind of foundational myths of the contemporary shipping industry is that shipping is a so-called derived demand. And it's a term that is used in in economics to basically describe a demand for a good or service that we don't want for itself. No one wants a container shipped from Shanghai to Rotterdam for the fun of it we do it because we want goods to be moved from shanghai to rotterdam and it it may seem completely self-evident but there is no there is no one who does this for fun whereas some people go on a train journey for fun just for tourism just for the experience. Some people like flying. Some people like to go for a bike ride. So all these things are, are, are things that we do, in part because they're functional, but in part also because there is a certain element of charm or enjoyment or something about it that makes sense to us. But what one of the things that I kind of criticize about the shipping industry is that that idea of of cargo transport being a derived demand only shows us half of the story. And it's the half that the shipping industry likes to tell because if shipping isn't only, you know, an absolute precondition for the global economy to function, but also if shipping is not something that anyone wants for its own sake, but only is only needed if there is, you know, economic activity, then it follows from that logically that no one should touch shipping itself. If you want to regulate or if you want to see a change in how much gets shipped or consumed then you have to tackle it at another point because shipping shouldn't be touched because it regulates itself. But of course the underlying argument there is that Shipping is so important to the global economy that we shouldn't regulate its emissions either. And that was the argument for several decades because it was as early as the Kyoto Protocol in 1997 that the UNFCCC effectively told the International Maritime Organization that they had to regulate shipping and cut its emissions. But it wasn't until 2018... Well, over two decades later, that the shipping industry finally had a target or an initial strategy, as the IMO so nicely calls it, an initial strategy to reduce emissions from shipping. And granted, there were a few technical things that had been adopted before that, but there was no industry-wide target to tackle the emissions. And just to give you an idea, the shipping industry emits about 1 billion tons of carbon dioxide every single year. And that's, that's on a par roughly with all of Germany. And it is also a little bit more than civil aviation. So, you know, So it's really quite significant, even though if you look at it, you think, oh, it's only 3% of global emissions. It's not that important, but it is actually quite huge. It's 300 million tons of fuel that's burnt every year, which causes emissions of around 1 billion tons of carbon dioxide. So that's, that's, that's really the kind of scale of the issue that we're talking about. So the question is then, how do we get that to zero and how can we do that? In such a way that we don't actually run out of the very limited carbon budget that we have left to remain within 1.5 degrees of warming, which you know there is scientific agreement around the fact that this is pretty much um, you know the upper limit of what you know of the risk that we can take as as, as humanity. So that is really the kind of challenge that we face and the initial strategy that the IMO agreed on was to cut emissions in half by 2050 on a 2008 baseline but because emissions had doubled between 1990 and 2008 it meant basically that if you know the industry manages to live up to that target successfully, that we go back to the emissions of 1990, which was the baseline at which, or or the baseline on which the IMO should have taken action under the Kyoto Protocol. So that's kind of to give a rough idea of what we're looking at in terms of scale. But to come back to the question of what we trade and how much we trade, that is precisely part of the message that these sail cargo companies that you know those small scale traditional sailing ships transporting cargo it's part of their message they're not just saying we should return to sailing ships they certainly say that but they also say the scale at which we small vessels are able to operate should give us reason to you know, rethink and reconsider exactly how much we are shipping because we had 65 tons of cargo on board. But the shipping industry as a whole transports 11 billion tons of cargo each year. And it took us about six months to get that cargo shipped, you know, including the fact that on the way out, we didn't have, you know, any cargo to speak of going uh, you know, westbound across the Atlantic. So we're basically faced with a real challenge of how do we think about unsustainable levels of consumption, not at an individual level, but at a societal level through the lens of shipping. Can this industry hold us up an image of what might be considered, you know, a sustainable le- level of of Producing and consuming goods on the planet, and I think that's that's the real the the kind of really big question that we're that we're kind of trying to deal with. It is can we keep on growing and just swap out fossil fuels for you know or with with some zero emission form of propulsion, and will that solve our problem, or does the scale of the shipping industry? invite us to really think about yeah where, where this is going and, and why, why we're doing so much of it. I mean,
2: right near the end of the book, you've got this brilliant line, which is, if we can't decarbonize shipping, we can't solve the climate crisis. And from you know how you've sort of brilliantly laid it out there, the question does flow. So what, what do we do? Uh, both in terms of kind of rethinking, as you say, what we're doing all this shipping for and what we're actually shipping, but also in, in terms of um, decarbonizing the shipping industry itself.
0: Yeah, and I think the, the reason that I've included that line, and it's, of course, it's, it's, it's a bit provocative because if shipping doesn't get decarbonized and we retain that 3% of emissions and everything else is absolutely zero emissions, it would be okay. There wouldn't be a massive problem. But the reason I, I, I bring it up is because the shipping industry is, much like aviation, really unique in that because international shipping happens between countries, it's not regulated within countries. And that's why back in the late 90s, the Kyoto Protocol said, we are not touching this. This is not an issue for individual um, sovereign nation states, but this is an issue that is to be tackled at that international level. But only shipping and aviation do that. No other sector relegates the regulation of their emissions and their overall environmental impact to a global um united nations body to say this is what needs to happen and then you know every country has to follow those rules simply because there isn't a country on the planet that will say oh we don't want shipping and we'll simply not follow your rules because obviously if they do that they can't ship their stuff anywhere because other ports will say your ship is polluting so we'll ground it will you know it won't be able or we won't allow it to leave port anymore until you fix those environmental problems. So there is a a very interesting way of how rules are set and how they're um, really enforced. But there's another element to which this is really quite crucial to the way in which we respond to climate change. And it's the fact that because we're regulating something between countries that's that's taking space in in, in the so-called high seas or um, the the area beyond national jurisdiction, um, it it means that we're actually dealing with a kind of environmental commons in the ocean because that space is not owned by any nation-state but under the United Nations um, Convention of the Law of the Sea, it is a space that everyone has equal right and access to use as you know, as a conduit for ships and, of course, also for fisheries. So the high seas are, are kind of, in a sense, a free-for-all. But because they're a free-for-all, they're basically a kind of something that sits between land and the atmosphere because it's not quite as firm as the land that we can claim as sovereign territories, but it's also not quite as, you know, difficult to kind of anchor or kind of grasp and grab as, as the environment, as, 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 the atmosphere as a whole. So it's in a sense, it's, it's almost, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a cynic doc of, of, of the climate, problem that we face and and that's why it's so crucial to find not just theoretical theoretically but also in regulatory terms a solution to this problem because if we can't tackle it at this level then it seems very unlikely that we'll get to a point where the you know global climate agreements will actually yield the kind of results that we need to see. Um, it, so in, in that sense, that, that's why I really kind of claim the, the paramount importance of, of this particular sector.
2: I mean, we, we've covered quite a lot from the book, but actually th- there are still so many questions um, I, I've got and I'm kind of thinking that, that flow from the book. And I suppose one way of sort of bringing things to a conclusion is talking about both the end of the book and the end of the journey. And 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 again, you know, to pick out a particular line, that there's this sense that you know the world as you know it uh, no longer exists when when you get off the boat. And I, and I guess two things flow from that. One is how did it feel when things came to an end? You know, when you finally kind of got off the boat uh, for good, as as it were. Um, And and that kind of sense of the personal feeling is really important um, to how the book is structured and the way the book is written. But I guess the other question is what have you learned really around um, the climate crisis? And um, I suppose where that kind of goes next for your own work?
0: Yeah. Um, Arriving was very, very strange because for quite a while, I was secretly hoping that this voyage would, you know, simply, you know, take us over, you know, the experience that you all had on land. And that by being at sea, we would never know lockdowns, we would never know the true experience of living through a pandemic. Because, and this was at least the first couple of months a bit, the kind of the hope on board that we would sit it out at sea. And by the time we got back to shore, everything would be fine. And in some ways it actually looked like it would be. Because on the way back, we stopped in Horta, in the Azores. And we were allowed to step ashore and have some shore leave for a couple of days. But that was a novelty. They'd only opened their borders less than a week before we arrived there. Similarly, when we then kind of traveled on to, to Germany, where we disembarked in the port of Hamburg, it, it was by that time almost back to normal. Yes, you had to wear masks and you had to disinfect your hands, but it was midsummer. Um, infection rates were very low and life in Hamburg was almost back to normal. But of course, being based in Australia, that wasn't entirely the end of the story because when we rounded um, the UK and we went over the north in between Orkney and Fair Fair Isle, um, we picked up some phone reception and at that point it was obvious that melbourne had gone into that lockdown that mid 2020 lockdown that would last for over 120 days and you know you know get the not so enviable um record of having one of the longest lockdowns, you know, throughout the entire pandemic. So that, that, that idea of the world, as you know, it no longer exists, kind of really evoked both that sense of clearly something has changed in our absence. But stepping off the ship, it wasn't immediately obvious, but in our encounters with people, it became soon clear that things had changed and that we had to somehow adapt to the new Kind of way in which people were doing things, but at the same time, it also really evokes the the mission that we were on. In that we joined the ship in the hope that it would potentially change, not necessarily the world, but at least um, the future of the shipping industry. And it, in many ways, by having um, been on that voyage, by 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 actively participating in it, we actually kind of created and extended that kind of possibility by taking it a little bit further into the realm of of reality. But then, of course, um, yeah, um, it. At the end of it, you stand on the docks and you've we've disembarked we've, we've, we've offloaded those sixty five tons of green coffee and cacao beans and rum and gin and you think, is this now worth it? Is this why we're doing it? What I mean, is there a point to spending so much time, effort and you know in it to spend to transport so little cargo. And of course, if you only look at it that way, it makes no sense at all. But I think it, it, it in a sense, it, it, it really comes down to the kind of um, political philosophy kind of that you pursue from a kind of deontological perspective, we simply need tight regulations. That everyone knows what their rights and, and obligations are and that there's no way of cheating that. From a much more kind of you know, planetary perspective, those rules don't matter if they don't deal with the consequences adequately. And the consequence obviously is riddled with uncertainties and kind of risk calculations. But that consequentialism is in a sense you know, the be all and end all of climate action, because if it's not environmentally effective, then you know, our rules don't make any sense. But within within that space, there's always that 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 third major option of of virtue ethics and doing what you believe is in a sense the right thing to do while constantly questioning what that right thing is. And that's in a sense where um I, I think the real value of these initiatives lies in, in not just saying, oh, according to the spreadsheet, this is what we have to do, and this is what we're able to agree um between countries, but that you also have that space of experimentation, of questioning, and of of, of really challenging some of these basic assumptions of you know perpetual growth, um of you know, industry dominance of, you know, just accepting that this is how things are, and try to think backwards from where you might want to go beyond not wrecking the planet. Um, and I've I really found that being on a, you know, on a century-old sailing ship that needs a lot of maintenance and a lot of, you know, work to really keep it afloat and keep it going, offers a really good metaphor because you need to work together, not just for the immediate you know, operating of the ship so it doesn't you know, stop moving through the water, but also so you remain safe together in, in, in that instant that you look out after each other, you work together to make it happen. But you also have to think more in the longer term because resources on board are limited, time and space are limited, and you have to somehow think of okay, what do we do to ensure that this ship can keep going in the longer term? And in that sense, it, it's kind of, it, it almost evokes a sense of kind of, Bookmin- bookminster fuller's idea of we're all stuck on spaceship earth which is also the kind of post lockdown message that bruno latour kind of gave us by by invoking the the the, the history or, or the story of of um, kafka's metamorphosis of being stuck in that space and you have kind of changed the, the space hasn't and you have to you know keep on inhabiting it with everyone else. There's no escaping and we are in effect locked down on this planet and I think that was for me the the big realization that we are and always have been in lockdown on, on this planet and that's not a bad thing. That's actually in a sense liberating because it forces us to sit down work together and you know mend and repair the mess that we've created.